So let's imagine that you think you're really somebody. And then you die. And you stand before God. And he informs you that what you accomplished in your life on earth is the equivalent to a cow eating grass in a pasture. I'm assuming no one hearing my voice would want a moment like that. Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Psalm 49. Last week, Jeff reminded us that every year we take the first two weeks in January to talk about money and giving and generosity. But all of those conversations always come down to the same thing. And that is an assessment of what we value and what we're actually living for. One of the things that is unique about Psalm 49 is it has the most comprehensive, all-inclusive introduction of any passage of Scripture in the Bible. It's a way of saying this message is so important, it applies to all people in all times. Verse 1, hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. So this psalm was written roughly 3,000 years ago. So think about that. Whether you live in an ancient culture 3,000 years ago or a modern 21st century America, all peoples of all times. In verse 1, when it says, all inhabitants of the world, that Hebrew word translated world is actually a very rare term. The common term means the world in space, like we would refer to the cosmos or something like that. But this is a very rare Hebrew word that actually means the world in time. So think of it this way. Imagine a line that travels as far north and south as you can imagine. And then you take your pencil and you put a slash on that line. That is the duration of your life in relationship to eternity. Whether you live 20 years, 50 years, 80 years, or 100 years, it's just a tiny slash. What he's referring to is every person that is living in the slash, the world of time. You only have a few days. It's a short time. So you better live for the things that really matter. 
Verse 2, high, low, rich, poor. Verse 3, he's going to speak wisdom, with, which is the truth, and understanding, which is how do you take the truth and apply it to life. Verse 4, he's going to distill this message. In many ways, you might say this is the meaning of life for this short period of time. He's going to distill it down to one simple proverb. When he talks about a riddle, we would probably use the word lyric. He's going to write this simple lyric in a song to get his message across. Verse 5, why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. The word fear in verse 5 could be translated afraid, but the word literally means overly awed, A-W-E-D. We would probably say overly impressed. Don't be overly impressed. With whom? With those who trust in their riches. Those who boast in their wealth. Now again, to understand this psalm correctly, it's very important to understand, this is not an indictment on the rich. There is no verse in the Bible that says there's any problem with being wealthy. Many of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament were wealthy people. We learned in the Proverbs that we should celebrate when the righteous prosper, because then everyone wins. But the psalmist isn't talking about the righteous. The psalmist is talking about those who trust their wealth, those who boast in their riches. The best way to understand this is those who live for the things of this world. Those who think what matters most in these few years we get on planet Earth. Live for money, for their house, for their car, for their bank account, for status, for fame. All the things that define life on this Earth. Essentially, he's saying... There's those that have it, and there's those that wish they had it. That describes most people and how they will invest their lives on planet Earth. The warning is not to live that way, because ultimately none of that matters. To understand verses 7, 8, and 9, the best way to read it is to understand verses 7 and 9 are the message, and verse 8 is the parentheses. So I'm going to read it that way. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him that he should live on eternally. 
that he should not undergo decay. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter how much status you have. You cannot redeem a human soul with something as worthless as money and stuff. Specifically, verse 9, no matter how much you have, you still are going to die. Verse 8, then, is the parentheses. Why? For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. If all of that stuff doesn't ultimately matter, why would we live for that stuff? Verse 10, for he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Here's the newsflash. Everyone dies. It doesn't really matter if you're rich or poor, if you're famous or unknown. It doesn't matter if you're wise or stupid or senseless. At the end of the story, everybody dies. In 1973, Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Denial of Death. And he identified how we as Americans are terrified at the thought of death. And the result of that is that it causes all these problems in our lives that prevents us from truly living life. At the end of the day, nobody, nobody is getting out of this story alive. When what you value most are the things of this world, you're terrified at the thought of death. But when you understand what matters forever, death is not to be feared. It's simply to be understood. And understanding it reminds us that our time on this earth is brief. So we better live for the things that matter. You can wear a mask for the next 30 years. You can lock yourself in your basement and never come out again. You can take a bath every night in antibacterial gel. But the reality is everyone is going to die. So we better be thoughtful about what we do with the days we've been given. He says they die and leave their wealth 
to others. Perhaps you've heard the story, the rich man died and someone said, how much did he leave? To which the other one said, all of it. So let's imagine you and your family or your friends go on a 30-day vacation to Jamaica. And all of your friends or family members are spending their days at the beach and discovering all these wonderful things to do in Jamaica. It's wonderful. But for some reason, you are obsessed with rocks. You find this unusual rock, and so you start to look for more rocks. And you're putting them all in a pile. And you get a bigger and bigger and bigger pile of rocks. In the meantime, your family is out having a great time. And every day they're saying, what are you doing? Why don't you come swimming? Why don't you come to the beach? Why don't you come with us and have some fun? But for some reason, you're obsessed with creating a rock pile. Eventually, the 30 days are up, and it's time to get on the plane and go home and leave behind the rock pile. What were you doing? Why would you spend your entire vacation piling up rocks that you knew you had to leave behind? I heard this week that Elon Musk has surpassed Jeff Bezos as the richest man in the world. I heard that on the radio while I was driving. And I literally, out loud, all by myself in the vehicle, said to my radio, who cares? That is the stupidest value system ever. How much is he going to leave behind? All of it. Why would you live to make a rock pile that you know you have to leave behind? Verse 11, the psalmist gets a bit sarcastic. He's trying to figure out why would anyone do that? Their inner thought is, maybe saying their inner thought must be, that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their names. The only thing he can figure out is they must believe even after they die, they'll live in their fancy house forever. Why else would you spend a lifetime with bigger houses, nicer cars, all this stuff that we accumulate. He says, 
they must think they're going to live there forever. In the ancient world, in order to achieve a level of immortality, you named a piece of ground after yourself. That's what he's talking about. So after the services today, everyone is invited to B.C. Acres. It's a piece of ground I've named after myself. How do you get there? You take a left turn on Clark Avenue. Now we laugh at that. But that is what we do, isn't it? People live to have buildings and places and streets and things named after them. It's an attempt to achieve some level of immortality. Verse 12 then is the first statement of the proverb. He's going to state it twice. But man in his pomp. Pomp is all the stuff that we do to try to make ourselves something in this life. Man in his pomp will not endure. That Hebrew word translated endure literally means make it through the night. It's the imagery of death as sleep. So I'm somebody with all my stuff and I go to bed and I wake up in the morning and I have nothing. Man in his pomp will not endure. What is he like? He is like the beasts that perish. He's accomplished no more than a cow eating grass in a field. Verse 13, this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve of their words. Again, it boils down to this. There's those who have large rock piles, and there's those who wish they did. Most people will be defined by one of those two categories. Verse 14, as sheep, they're appointed for Sheol, or the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their forms shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. The word habitation means mansion. So the imagery here is people are like sheep. And there's a whole flock of sheep, and they're all headed the same direction to the grave. And the shepherd that is leading them to the grave is death himself. Because this is so normal in our culture, it's just common for everyone to live this way. We're like sheep, and death is our shepherd leading us to destruction. The upright would be the righteous 
shall rule over them in the morning. This is again in keeping with this imagery that someone goes to bed at night thinking he or she is someone and wakes up in the morning. And what do you know? They have nothing and the righteous are ruling over them. Verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Rather than living for the things of this world, we understand what ultimately matters are the things of God. This was our study in the Gospel of John. God will redeem me. God will save me. God will receive me. And what matters will matter forever. Rather than living for the things of this world for a short time, we live for the things that will matter forever. Imagine if Jesus' disciples had as their highest goal, how long can I live on earth? They never would have obeyed their calling. They all understood it is most likely they will ultimately die for the cause of Christ. The mission was not how long can I live on earth. The mission was to be obedient to their calling. Verse 16, so do not be afraid. This is our word again. Do not be overly impressed when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Verses 18 and 19 are the big problem. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers and they will never see the light. This is the problem, the value system of the culture is intoxicating to people. While we live in this world, it is true that your self-worth is defined by your net worth. It does matter to people what your house looks like. It does matter what kind of a car you drive. It does matter what your title is. It does matter if you're somebody. This is our value system. This is how we assess people. So we get caught up in it and we're so busy congratulating ourselves. Look at my rock pile. And others look at my rock pile and they applaud. And they convince me I really do have value. I really do matter. And the applause becomes so loud. It drowns out the voice of God that keeps saying the rock pile doesn't matter. 
What he says is the result of getting caught up in the value system of the culture is you never see the light. To me, that is a terrifying verse. I only get a few days on planet Earth. And to get caught up in the value system of this world and to waste my life building a rock pile that I have to leave behind is an utter waste of life. One more time, the proverb, verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, meaning not understanding what we've talked about today. What is he like? He's like the beasts that perish. He accomplishes, she accomplishes nothing more with the days we've been given than a cow eating grass in a pasture. One of the things I love about this psalm is it is so filled with hope. If at the end of the day, what really mattered forever is how big is your rock pile? Most of us would just be losers. There's only a few that ultimately get a really big rock pile. And the rest of us are just losers. But if the psalm is true, If what God is saying is true, every single one of us, no matter who you are, has an equal opportunity, not just an opportunity, an equal opportunity to live for the things that will matter forever. Doesn't matter if you're old or young, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. Doesn't matter if you're black or white. Doesn't matter. Every single one of us has an equal opportunity to live our lives for the things that ultimately matter. When you understand this, and when you choose to live this way, You become very sensitive to the still, small voice of God. When he calls you to take steps of faith. To be part of something that will matter forever. Listen to how that happened in Andy and Katie's story. Would you you describe yourself as a planner? Yes. Would you say that? (laughs) (laughs) So a perfect Saturday morning for me is waking up early and having the house to myself, getting the coffee turned on, And then I can just 
go and sit at the computer, review our Quicken budget, and see how our spending has gone for the past week. So we're planning on, obviously, immediate expenses. And then I've got some intermediate plans of, look, we want a house. And so we need to start saving for that down payment. And then longer-term plans, whether it's my 401k. And really, we, I mean, it all made sense. And you know, giving has been a part of what we've been doing. And it's, it's something that we always did. I don't know if we always put a ton of thought into it, but it was always... Part of the part of the equation in my budget. One of the ways that we started giving back in our community was um, through supporting one of the local agencies who works um, with foster care kids. And as we were doing that, Andy thought it would be a good idea to go um, to this information meeting that they had offered, and um, just so that we could be educated on how we were giving and who we were giving our money to, which was a great idea. <laughs> so after the meeting, we're driving home, and I was feeling pretty good about what we had learned, and I turned to Katie and I say, so Katie, what do you think about that? And then Katie looks at me and she says, what if God's asking us to be foster parents? And that was not what I expected her to ask me. And <laughs> uh, two kids was what I had planned for. She is pregnant with our third kid. And in my mind, I'm going back to my planning and the long range and short range. And this was not on any range of being a foster parent. And, and it was a big surprise to me. It was neat to see how God put different conversations and things that we were studying here at church on Sundays. And it was all kind of piecing together the fact that maybe it doesn't make sense, but that God was indeed asking us to do it. And it got to a point for me where um, if we didn't, take that next step in the foster care journey and that opportunity that it would be um, somewhat disobedient to what God was asking us to do. And so it turned into a heart issue, I think, for me fairly quickly. And um, it may not have been as quickly a heart issue for Andy, but um, That's cause it came, he came around. <laughs> God began to work in his heart in a way that Andy would be able to respond. And so I think that's probably what's really neat is that God comes to us where we're at. So <laughs> For a while, I honestly prayed that God would change Katie's heart because I could not understand. It didn't make sense to me on a whole multitude of levels. For me to be obedient, it was involved letting go of a lot of the control that I wanted. Like, I had to let that go and say, God, you're asking us to do this and I'm ready to go along. I'm scared, but I trust you. So Noelle is eight years old now. We met her when she was three months old. She moved in when she was five months old. 
and then we were able to adopt her um, when she was just over a year. So our story um, involves foster care, and that's just a specific piece of it, but I think the broader part of the journey, I think, is just living a genuine faith walk. I think that's probably what it is for me. Um, the ability to to give up my time or my resources or anything really. It, um, it comes from a place where I just long to have a genuine relationship with God and having Noel as that reminder of God providing for us and um, stepping into something that you don't know the end result of. It's neat to just have her be in our family and just be that visual reminder for us that God provides. If eight years ago we say no to following God's direction for us, I guarantee you my Saturday morning coffees make a little more sense. And I, I know that there would be a little more free time in our day. And, and I know that our savings plan may have some more dollars in it. can't imagine what life would be like.